Section 4 of Chapter 21 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 21, Section 4. It was on the 12th of May that the King left Kensington for Gravesend where he proposed to embark for the continent. Three days before his departure, the Parliament of Scotland had, after a recess of about two years, met again at Edinburgh. Hamilton, who had, in the preceding session, sat on the throne and held the sceptre, was dead, and it was necessary to find a new Lord High Commissioner. The person selected was John Hay, Marquess of Tweedale, Chancellor of the Realm, a man grown old in business, well-informed, prudent, humane, blameless in private life, and on the whole as respectable as any Scottish lord who had been long and deeply concerned in the politics of those troubled times. His task was not without difficulty. It was indeed well known that the estates were generally inclined to support the government, but it was also well known that there was one subject which would require the most dexterous and delicate management. The cry of the blood shed more than three years before in Glencoe had at length made itself heard. Towards the close of the year 1693, the reports which had at first been contemptuously derided as factious calumnies began to be generally thought deserving of serious attention. Many people a little disposed to place confidence in anything that came forth from the secret presses of the Jacobites owned that for the honour of the government some inquiry ought to be instituted. The amiable Mary had been much shocked by what she heard. William had, at her request, empowered the Duke of Hamilton and several other Scotchmen of note to investigate the whole matter. But the Duke died, his colleagues were slack in the performance of their duty, and the King, who knew little and cared little about Scotland, forgot to urge them. It now appeared that the government would have done wisely as well as rightly by anticipating the wishes of the country. The horrible story, repeated by the non-jurors, pertinaciously, confidently, and with so many circumstances as almost enforced belief, had at length roused all Scotland. The sensibility of a people eminently patriotic was galled by the taunts of southern pamphleteers, who asked whether there was on the north of the Tweed no law, no justice, no humanity, no spirit to demand redress, even for the foulest wrongs. Each of the two extreme parties, which were diametrically opposed to each other in general politics, was impelled by a peculiar feeling to call for inquiry. The Jacobites were delighted by the prospect of being able to make out a case which would bring discredit 
on the usurper, and which might be set off against the many offences imputed by the Whigs to Claverhouse and Mackenzie. The zealous Presbyterians were not less delighted at the prospect of being able to ruin the master of Stair. They had never forgotten or forgiven the service which he had rendered to the house of Stuart in the time of the persecution. They knew that, though he had cordially concurred in the political revolution which had freed them from the hated dynasty, he had seen with displeasure that ecclesiastical revolution which was, in their view, even more important. They knew that church government was with him merely an affair of state, and that, looking at it as an affair of state, he preferred the episcopal to the synodical model. They could not, without uneasiness, see so adroit and eloquent an enemy of pure religion, constantly attending the royal steps, and constantly breathing counsel in the royal ear. They were therefore impatient for an investigation which, if one half of what was rumoured were true, must produce revelations fatal to the power and fame of the minister whom they distrusted. Nor could that minister rely on the cordial support of all who held office under the crown. His genius and influence had excited the jealousy of many less successful courtiers, and especially of his fellow secretary, Johnston. Thus, on the eve of the meeting of the Scottish Parliament, Glencoe was in the mouths of all Scotchmen, of all factions, and of all sects. William, who was just about to start for the continent, learned that on this subject the estates must have their way, and that the best thing that he could do would be to put himself at the head of a movement which it was impossible for him to resist. A commission authorizing Tweedale and several other privy councillors to examine fully into the matter about which the public mind was so strongly excited was signed by the king at Kensington, was sent down to Edinburgh, and was there sealed with the great seal of the realm. This was accomplished just in time. The Parliament had scarcely entered on business when a member rose to move for an inquiry into the circumstances of the slaughter of Glencoe. Tweedale was able to inform the estates that His Majesty's goodness had prevented their desires, that a commission of precognition had, a few hours before, passed in all the forms, and that the lords and gentlemen named in that instrument would hold their first meeting before night. The Parliament unanimously voted thanks to the King for this instance of his paternal care, but some of those who joined in the vote of thanks expressed a very natural apprehension that the second investigation might end as unsatisfactorily as the first investigation had ended. The honour of the country, they said, was at stake, and the commissioners were bound to proceed with such diligence that the result of the inquest might be known before the end of the session. Tweedale gave assurances which for a time 
silenced the murmurers. But, when three weeks had passed away, many members became mutinous and suspicious. On the 14th of June, it was moved that the commissioners should be ordered to report. The motion was not carried, but it was renewed day after day. In three successive sittings, Tweedale was able to restrain the eagerness of the assembly, but when he at length announced that the report had been completed, and added that it would not be laid before the estates till it had been submitted to the king, there was a violent outcry. The public curiosity was intense, for the examination had been conducted with closed doors, and both commissions and clerks had been sworn to secrecy. The king was in the Netherlands. Weeks must elapse before his pleasure could be taken, and the session could not last much longer. In a fourth debate there were signs which convinced the Lord High Commissioner that it was expedient to yield, and the report was produced. It is a paper highly creditable to those who framed it, an excellent digest of evidence, clear, passionless, and austerely just. No source from which valuable information was likely to be derived had been neglected. Glengarry and Keppock, though notoriously disaffected to the government, had been permitted to conduct the case on behalf of their unhappy kinsmen. Several of the Macdonalds, who had escaped from the havoc of that night, had been examined, and among them the reigning Mac Ian, the eldest son of the murdered chief. The correspondence of the Master of Stair with the military men who commanded in the Highlands had been subjected to a strict but not unfair scrutiny. The conclusion to which the commissioners came, and in which every intelligent and candid inquirer will concur, was that the slaughter of Glencoe was a barbarous murder, and that of this barbarous murder the letters of the Master of Stair were the sole warrant and cause. That Breadalbane was an accomplice in the crime was not proved, but he did not come off quite clear. In the course of the investigation it was incidentally discovered that he had, while distributing the money of William among the Highland chiefs, professed to them the warmest zeal for the interest of James, and advised them to take what they could get from the usurper, but to be constantly on the watch for a favourable opportunity of bringing back the rightful king. Breadalbane's defence was that he was a greater villain than his accusers imagined, and that he had pretended to be a Jacobite, only in order to get at the bottom of the Jacobite plans. In truth, the depths of this man's knavery were unfathomable. It was impossible to say which of his treasons were, to borrow the Italian classification, single treasons, and which double treasons. On this occasion, the Parliament supposed him to have been guilty only of a single treason, and sent him to the Castle of Edinburgh. The government, 
on full consideration, gave credit to his assertion that he had been guilty of a double treason, and let him out again. The report of the commission was taken into immediate consideration by the estates. They resolved, without one dissentient voice, that the order signed by William did not authorise the slaughter of Glencoe. They next resolved, but it should be seen not unanimously, that the slaughter was a murder. They proceeded to pass several votes, the sense of which was finally summed up in an address to the king. How that part of the address, which related to the master of Stair, should be framed, was a question about which there was much debate. Several of his letters were called for and read, and several amendments were put to the vote. It should seem that the Jacobites and the extreme Presbyterians were, but with too good cause, on the side of severity. The majority, under the skilful management of the Lord High Commissioner, acquiesced in words which made it impossible for the guilty minister to retain his office, but which did not impute to him such criminality as would have affected his life or his estate. They censured him, but censured him in terms far too soft. They blamed his immoderate zeal against the unfortunate clan, and his warm directions about performing the execution by surprise. His excess in his letters they pronounced to have been the original cause of the massacre, but instead of demanding that he should be brought to trial as a murderer, they declared that, in consideration of his absence and of his great place, they left it to the royal wisdom to deal with him in such a manner as might vindicate the honour of the government. The indulgence which was shown to the principal offender was not extended to his subordinates. Hamilton, who had fled and had been vainly cited by proclamation at the city cross to appear before the estates, was pronounced not to be clear of the blood of the Glencoe men. Glenlyon, Captain Drummond, Lieutenant Lindsay, Ensign Lundy, and Sergeant Barber were still more distinctly designated as murderers, and the King was requested to command the Lord Advocate to prosecute them. The Parliament of Scotland was undoubtedly on this occasion severe in the wrong place and lenient in the wrong place. The cruelty and baseness of Glenlyon and his comrades excite, even after the lapse of a hundred and sixty years, emotions which make it difficult to reason calmly. Yet whoever can bring himself to look at the conduct of these men with judicial impartiality will probably be of the opinion that they could not, without great detriment to the commonwealth, have been treated as assassins. They had slain nobody whom they had not been positively directed by their commanding officer to slay. That subordination, without which an army is the worst of all rabbles, would be at an end if every soldier were to be held answerable for the justice of every order in obedience to which he pulls his trigger. The case of Glencoe 
was doubtless an extreme case, but it cannot easily be distinguished in principle from cases which, in war, are of ordinary occurrence. Very terrible military executions are sometimes indispensable. Humanity itself may require them. Who, then, is to decide whether there be an emergency such as makes severity the truest mercy? Who is to determine whether it be or be not necessary to lay a thriving town in ashes, to decimate a large body of mutineers, to shoot a whole gang of banditti? Is the responsibility with the commanding officer, or with the rank and file whom he orders to make ready, present, and fire? And if the general rule be that the responsibility is with the commanding officer, and not with those who obey him, is it possible to find any reason for pronouncing the case of Glencoe an exception to that rule? It is remarkable that no member of the Scottish Parliament proposed that any of the private men of Argyle's regiment should be prosecuted for murder. Absolute impunity was granted to everybody below the rank of sergeant. Yet on what principle? Surely, if military obedience was not a valid plea, every man who shot a Macdonald on that horrible night was a murderer, and if military obedience was a valid plea for the musketeer who acted by the order of Sergeant Barber, why not for Barber, who acted by order of Glenlyon? And why not for Glenlyon, who acted by order of Hamilton? It can scarcely be maintained that more deference is due from a private to a non-commissioned officer than from a non-commissioned officer to his captain, or from a captain to his colonel. It may be said that the orders given to Glen Lyon were of so peculiar a nature that, if he had been a man of virtue, he would have thrown up his commission, would have braved the displeasure of Colonel, General, and Secretary of State, would have incurred the heaviest penalty which a court-martial could inflict, rather than have performed the part assigned to him. And this is perfectly true. But the question is not whether he acted like a virtuous man, but whether he did that for which he could, without infringing a rule essential to the discipline of camps and to the security of nations, be hanged as a murderer. In this case, disobedience was assuredly a moral duty, but it does not follow that obedience was a legal crime. It seems, therefore, that the guilt of Glenlyon and his fellows was not within the scope of the penal law. The only punishment which could properly be inflicted on them was that which made Cain cry out that it was greater than he could bear, to be vagabonds on the face of the earth, and to carry wherever they went a mark from which even bad men should turn away sick with horror. It was not so with the master of Stair. He had been solemnly pronounced, both by the commission of precognition 
and by the estates of the realm in full parliament to be the original author of the massacre that it was not advisable to make examples of his tools was the strongest reason for making an example of him every argument which can be urged against punishing the soldier who executes the unjust and inhuman orders of his superior is an argument for punishing with the utmost rigour of the law the superior who gives unjust and inhuman orders where there can be no responsibility below there should be double responsibility above what the parliament of scotland ought with one voice to have demanded was not that a poor illiterate sergeant who was hardly more accountable than his own halbert for the bloody work which he had done should be hanged in the grass market but that the real murderer the most politic the most eloquent the most powerful of scottish statesmen should be brought to a public trial and should if found guilty die the death of a felon nothing less than such a sacrifice could expiate such a crime unhappily the estates by extenuating the guilt of the chief offender and at the same time demanding that his humble agents should be treated with a severity beyond the law made the stain which the massacre had left on the honour of the nation broader and deeper than before nor is it possible to acquit the king of a great breach of duty it is indeed highly probable that till he received the report of his commissioners he had been very imperfectly informed as to the circumstances of the slaughter we can hardly suppose that he was much in the habit of reading jacobite pamphlets and if he did read them he would have found in them such a quantity of absurd and rancorous invective against himself that he would have been very little inclined to credit any imputation which they might throw on his servants he would have seen himself accused in one tract of being a concealed papist in another of having poisoned jeffreys in the tower in a third of having contrived to have talmash taken off at brest he would have seen it asserted that in ireland he once ordered fifty of his wounded english soldiers to be burned alive he would have seen that the unalterable affection which he felt from his boyhood to his death for three or four of the bravest and most trusty friends that ever prince had the happiness to possess was made a ground for imputing to him abominations as foul as those which are buried under the waters of the dead sea he might therefore naturally be slow to believe frightful imputations thrown by writers whom he knew to be habitual liars on a statesman whose abilities he valued highly and to whose exertions he had on some great occasions owed much but he could not after he had read the documents transmitted to him from edinburgh by tweedale entertain the slightest doubt of the guilt of the master of stair to visit that guilt with exemplary punishment was the sacred duty of a sovereign who had sworn 
with his hand lifted up towards heaven, that he would, in his kingdom of Scotland, repress in all estates and degrees all oppression, and would do justice without acceptance of persons, as he hoped for mercy from the Father of all mercies. William contented himself with dismissing the master from office. For this great fault, a fault amounting to a crime, Burnet tried to frame not a defence but an excuse. He would have us believe that the king, alarmed by finding how many persons had borne a part in the slaughter of Glencoe, thought it better to grant a general amnesty than to punish one massacre by another. But this representation is the very reverse of the truth. Numerous instruments had doubtless been employed in the work of death, but they had all received their impulse, directly or indirectly, from a single mind. High above the crowd of offenders towered one offender, preeminent in parts, knowledge, rank, and power. In return for many victims immolated by treachery, only one victim was demanded by justice, and it must ever be considered as a blemish on the frame of William that the demand was refused. On the 17th of July, the session of the Parliament of Scotland closed. The estates had liberally voted such a supply as the poor country which they represented could afford. They had indeed been put into high good humour by the notion that they had found out a way of speedily making that poor country rich. Their attention had been divided between the inquiry into the slaughter of Glencoe and some specious commercial projects, of which the nature will be explained and the fate related in a future chapter. End of section 4